Hello, listeners. I'm Erwin Chemerinsky, Dean of Berkeley Law, and this is More Just, a podcast how law schools can help solve society's most difficult problems. The federal clerkship hiring process is famously high stress and opaque, and a tremendous career benefit to those who obtain clerkships. But the demographics of these clerkships lag, despite years of good intentions and earnest effort. Informal studies show the ranks are dominated by white men with top law schools, especially Yale and Harvard. Researchers from the Berkeley Judicial Institute set out to understand why the mix has been so difficult to change. In a groundbreaking study featuring interviews with 50 federal judges, they teased out some trends and potential new practice for hiring and found that diversity doesn't mean the same thing to every judge. I'm delighted to have all three authors of the study which we published later this year in the Harvard Law Review. Let me briefly introduce them. Judge Jeremy Fogel was a United States District Court judge for the Northern District of California, spent seven years leading the Federal Judicial Center, the Federal Court's Education and Research Arm, before becoming the founding director of the Berkeley Judicial Institute in 2018. California Supreme Court Associate Justice Goodwin Liu was a Berkeley law professor before joining the state's highest court in 2011. Before going to academia, he clerked for Judge David Tatel on the United States Court of Appeals for the District Columbia Circuit and for Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Mary Hoofs is an associate professor of law at the Pepperdine Caruso School of Law and co-director of the William Matthew Byrne Jr. Judicial Clerkship Institute. She earned her PhD from Berkeley Law's Jurisprudence Social Policy Program and was Berkeley Judicial Institute's research director when the study began. Jeremy, Goodwin, Mary, thank you so much for doing this and congratulations on your article, which is so important and pathbreaking. So let me start with the obvious question. Why did you decide to do the study and write this article? Well, I'm gonna start Erwin and, and thank you so much for having us and, and also just for your steadfast support of BJI, which without which this study would not have happened. And just like BJI kind of got started when, when you and I had a, a breakfast meeting in, in DC a number of years ago, uh, that's kind of how this study got started. After Goodwin became aware that BGI was going to be a going concern, he was in Washington, D.C., where I was at the time, and he said, why don't we get together? And we had breakfast, and we started talking about clerkships. And he said that this was a project that he was very interested in and thought that we had a great opportunity to combine the academic side of things that he represented the work he had done with others on this area of clerkships, particularly as it affects students and law schools, and then using the context that I had in the judiciary as a result of my, my time at the FJC and just having been a judge for as long as I was, uh, we could find a way to combine our, our networks and uh, come up with something that was really the first ever qualitative study of clerkship hiring. Uh, there had been some quantitative studies with data and so forth, but there had never really been a a look at what was going on in the minds of the judges who who made the hiring decisions. So it was something we had a really great conversation about, and we decided it's something we should do together. And then uh, not long after that, Mary agreed to come to Berkeley with me and be the research director for the um, Berkeley Judicial Institute. And uh, that's where we all got going. Uh, it, it was in the incubator for quite a while, and then we spent some time developing our, our protocols and uh, interview formats and deciding who we wanted to interview and all those kinds of research decisions. But that was the origin. 
in your article, fairly early on, you present statistics, some of which come from the National Association of Law Placement from 2019. And according to their statistics, those going into clerkships, 4.1% were African-American graduates, 6% were Asian-American graduates, 7.9% were Latinx graduates, and 79.2% were white graduates. And so from what you were just saying, your study is to try to provide an explanation for this and hopefully a direction forward. I think the next obvious question is, how did you go about doing this study? What was the methodology that you used? So I'll jump in and Mary and Jeremy can add. So I think it's fair to say, Erwin, that we initially approached uh, this topic with the numbers that you mentioned very much at the front of our mind because they had been published so many times and you know now does a fairly good job with the limited data that they have in providing these statistics. But it quickly became apparent to us because we consulted with a variety of colleagues in confidential focus groups uh, with sitting judges that we didn't need to carry into our project a preset definition of diversity. We had our own interests, of course, but the best way to get judges to discuss this topic with us was not to even come in with our own definition of diversity, but rather to approach them and ask how they think about it. And it turns out that was a great piece of advice because we got some very interesting answers from people as to all the variety of dimensions that they think about um, and consider in the process. And actually that I think was just helpful in setting a tone of our being open basically to learning uh, instead of saying, what are you doing about, you know, race and gender diversity in, in clerkships? Rather, we said, you know, how do you think about diversity? The other piece of advice that we got um, was that when we first started, we thought, well, you know, we would do the usual things. Maybe we would survey judges. We would, you know, have a big, broad pool of, of data. But the focus groups told us that most importantly, judges aren't going to give you really rich information and maybe not even candid information if you survey them with an impersonal tool that they don't trust. The only way you're going to really get great information from people is if you sit down face-to-face and actually talk to them. And that this was actually a good thing in the, insofar as um, the advice to us was, you know, the two of you, meaning myself and, and Jeremy, being judges, um, had that kind of entree with colleagues and that they would actually talk to us. And at some point we all kind of looked at each other and said, are we really going to do this? You know, we're going to sit down and talk to everyone one-on-one. And this whole process was aided, it turns out, fortuitously by the pandemic. I think initially Jeremy and I had thought, you know, actually we're going to have to go and sit down with these, with these people one-on-one uh, in their chambers and actually go visit them and talk to them. And we were you know, thinking about a a quite ambitious project. But it turns out um, the timing of it, um, we didn't obviously foresee, no one could foresee that there would be a global pandemic, which then got everyone quite used to the online medium of Zoom. And and so by the time we did the study, we did it all online and people were very comfortable and candid with the format. And it was, you know, in this kind of intimate way, uh, Mary, Jeremy and I, Um, sitting down with each person in a confidential format, just talking. And it turned out to be one of the most rewarding experiences personally, I think, just to hear uh, the quality of thought that 
our colleagues give to how they hire. And hopefully we're able to capture that in our in our study. I, I would just add saying that I, I think it was really fortuitous too, because you know, we had said, well, how are we going to travel and talk to all these judges in person? Apart from not having to do that, I think people maybe were more candid. I have no way of proving this, but my my impression is that people were more candid in the Zoom format than they would have been if we'd been sitting in their office. I also think something that Goodwin touched on, that the fact that the two of you are judges really made an enormous difference. It gave you a unique ability to have the conversation, which is what gives this study so much importance. Well, I'd like to talk about the conclusion of the study and maybe to go in order in which you cover it in the article. Um, One topic you talk about is what law schools produce graduates who get hired as clerkships. And maybe talk a little bit about that and then just go in order through some of the other points that you make. Sure. I think the the law schools, that was one of our more interesting findings and really led us to reflect on the notion that diversity among judges will likely lead to diversity among law clerks. So we looked at the law schools that the judges in our sample had attended, and we found that among judges who had attended one of the top 20 schools, which we refer to as the elite schools, among judges who had attended these elite schools, about a third of them hired at least a quarter of their clerks from law schools outside of the top 20, where judges who had not attended a top 20 law school, more than three quarters of them hired at least a quarter of their clerks from schools outside of the top 20. And so that was a pretty striking difference. In terms of why we should care about that, I assume the notion is that if we broaden the pool of law schools, we're going to broaden the people who might get hired, and that will help lead to more diversity in who gets hired. I think so, yes. Uh, it, racial diversity and diversity along a broader range of dimensions, like socioeconomic, for example, judges talked about uh, a big part of our finding was that judges who had very diverse clerks were willing to depart from the conventional criteria of top law schools or uh, students at the very top of their classes, they would say things like, I, I just am not confident that every clerk who's capable of doing good quality work just happened to go to one of four or five law schools. And instead, they had a lot more confidence in this idea that it wasn't taking a risk to hire someone outside of an elite law school, that they were capable of finding someone who could do very good work from a much broader range of places. And I would just add to that, I think our collective impression was that the top five law schools or the top 10 or the top 14 or whatever the, whatever the cutoff is, is a shortcut. It's a, it's a heuristic that a lot of judges use in hiring, that uh, they feel safer. They say, well, okay, I mean, I'm not taking a risk if I hire somebody from one of those schools. Whereas if I, they feel as though if they go outside of that category, they are taking a risk. And the judges who had the most diverse cohorts of clerks, and I'm using diversity very broadly as well, certainly not, not just race and gender and ethnicity, but, but also socioeconomic and other kinds of background factors that they were willing to not use that shortcut. So they, they certainly hired people from those elite schools, but they also hired people from others. And they were very proud of the outcome. They, they felt that they got uh, more of a mix of people, more of a mix of perspectives they felt maybe that some of their colleagues who were not doing that were in a way kind of selling themselves short by not 
being willing to look beyond their comfort level. You know, that it seemed like a, I don't have the time to take a chance or I, my work is too important for me to take a chance. So I'm not going to look outside the familiar turf. I think judges who themselves came from outside the familiar turf were much more willing to do that because they didn't have that same uh, heuristic at play. A second aspect that you look at is the role ideology plays in hiring. And I was surprised in reading your study that the vast majority of the judges you talked to indicated that ideology didn't play a role in their hiring. Be interested to hear your thoughts about what you learned. I would say that I was surprised too. I thought that was one of the most surprising findings that we had. And at first blush, one might say, oh my gosh, are these judges not acknowledging the obvious? Because uh, many empirical studies that are out there of the Supreme Court, but even of the other federal courts, find a lot of evidence of ideological matching between judges and their clerks. And so one might be tempted to say, well, they're not being candid with you or they're not acknowledging what is the reality. Uh, but I don't think that's actually what's going on. Uh, we had no reason to think that the judges were not candid with us um, with respect to that particular question, when in fact we asked much more, or equally at least, sensitive questions, you know, very directly to them, like how many black clerks have you hired? You know, have you ever tried to hire, you know, in this category, that category? We, we got very candid responses. And so it's not, not really, I think, a question of, of their truthfulness. I think rather a more complicated story emerges, which relates to our sample and the general makeup of the applicant pool. So first, I think it should be acknowledged that our sample relied on a series of sort of sampling uh, buckets, if you will, in order to get a variety of dimensions of diversity among the judges that we were looking for. So for example, we oversampled minority judges because there's so few of them, and we wanted to make sure we had a very large number in our pool. And it turns out that we ended up with, uh, I believe, 30 of the 34 minority judges who were eligible for our study at the time. And when I say eligible, I mean that we had a cutoff of judges who had had three years of hiring under their belts. This also eliminated, as a consequence, most of the recent appointees by President Trump, and we have none of the appointees by President Biden, right? So the newest judges of the last two administrations are not in our sample. We do have three, I should say, we do have three uh, judges appointed by President Trump, but it's a small number compared to how many are out there. If you just keep that in mind, and then keep in mind another fact, which is that the best political science studies that have looked at this detail that most applicants for clerkships from the top schools, and here top can be quite broad, let's say top 20 or so, are liberal in their orientation. And this is based on campaign finance data. Um, this is based on their political donations as tracked individually because this information is public. It's something on the order of three to one, which is quite askew. And so what we observed in our study essentially was we had a majority of Democratic appointees in our, in our pool because the high number of minority judges, um, they, they trended Democratic. That's just the makeup of, of, of that pool. Um, they were reporting, I think, quite honestly, that they did not apply ideology in their hiring because if they were interested in matching, and they didn't, they didn't say that they were, but if they were, um, they didn't need to do anything uh, to, to get it because the pool that they see is largely um, a left-of-center uh, pool, just if you look at political orientation alone. 
What we were missing in the study were the group of judges who had hired um, largely conservative clerks. And we have, uh, this was not part of our study, but we have a variety of other sort of ambient information from our colleagues and and, um, talking to people in law schools that uh, many of the conservative judges hire off plan, which is to say they go earlier than um, the, the after two years hiring plan. These judges didn't show up in our study. So to the extent that there's some matching that's happening, we got inferences from other comments from judges that by the time they are hiring on plan, and this is both Republican and Democratic appointees, not partisan, by the time they're hiring on plan, they don't see many conservative applicants on the pool. They've all been snatched up. And so to the extent that there is cross-ideological hiring going on, it is by Republican appointees hiring liberal clerks. And that actually shows up in some of the empirical data, and that showed up in our study as well, that there were some Republican appointees we interviewed who said, oh yeah, I hire, you know, most of my clerks are liberal um, because that's who I see, right? So I think that the, the one last factor I would say is that the ideological matching that happens at the Supreme Court hiring level also casts a bit of a shadow over the practices of the federal courts of appeals, such that uh, the segmentation that happens in the clerkship market that I've already described is exacerbated you know, by the fact that if you want to clerk for a feeder judge, you are largely sort of matching um, all the way up the line, meaning feeder judges who were, say, Republican appointees told us, you know, I cannot place a liberal clerk who clerks for me with a conservative judge, uh, justice on the court, nor can I place a liberal clerk with a liberal justice on the court because the general practice as it has emerged of the Supreme Court justices is to hire ideologically matched law clerks from ideologically matched judges. And so it's sort of lockstep all the way up the line and deviating from that isn't very prevalent if it happens at all. And so that further hardens, I think, some of the patterns that we see. So, you know, our general observations are that if we want ideological diversity among clerks in particular chambers, it's going to require a couple things. One, probably some changes in how Supreme Court justices hire. And then secondly, much stronger signaling by judges in the clerkship market that that's actually what they're looking for. Uh, But it's very hard to fight the segmentation that's already happening in the market um, at the get-go. And what you said is something that I also say we're seeing among the students applying for clerkships. Um, You referred to a hiring plan, and this is one where the federal judges are not supposed to consider students for clerkships until June of their second year of law school. But of course, there's no way to enforce that as against Article III judges. And we're hearing especially of conservative judges who are not following the plan, and in some instances, even hiring first-year students in the second semester. And it's interesting, this isn't the first attempt at a hiring plan, but it's the first time I've seen it collapse along ideological lines. Yeah, unfortunately, we we don't have the data in our study to actually approach this in a systematic way. But what you just said, Erwin, certainly matches um, things that we heard here and there from some of our interview subjects and what we've heard you know, outside of our study. And you know, some of the judges express concern about this because of the appearance that it creates. Um, the segmentation in the clerkship market mirrors the sort of polarization in society more generally. And so many judges said, hey, you know, I would actually like to have uh, a broader spectrum ideologically of law clerks, but I just don't know how to get it, you know, because I can't, you know, if I want to be on plan, which serves a number of important other 
purposes, which we can discuss, including giving students who don't have as much social capital or, you know, sort of capital in the, in the legal field, a longer runway, right, to develop themselves. So, that, so many judges are committed to the plan for that reason, but they can't get uh, the ideological diversity that they're looking for with that approach. I want to move to another factor that you discuss, which is the desire for socioeconomic diversity. You found that the judges really wanted to have this. And I'm interested in the obstacles here. Some of it is, how did the judges find out socioeconomic diversity? I'm the first in my family to go to college, but I don't put that on my resume and I don't know, know, it, know it for that. And also it may be that those who are more socioeconomically diverse are less likely to know about clerkships. I didn't apply for clerkships in law school because I didn't know about what a clerkship was. My sons who have gone to law school knew to apply for clerkships. And there may also be more economic pressure, especially on those who come from more economically disadvantaged backgrounds, to take things that are a bit more lucrative than clerkships. So I'm really interested in what you found that relates to all of this. Part of it is the law school issue we talked about earlier. Judges who hired from a broader band of law schools also reported having a more socioeconomically diverse cohort of clerks. Some people had even gone to night school programs because that's what they could afford to do because they were working during the day. And that, I think, is, was one of the, the markers. But I think another one was, was intention on the part of the judges, you know, letting it be known in their hiring when they were talking with uh, clerkship advisors at law schools or other, you know, speaking at events or, or other ways that they were putting their preferences out there. And this goes to, to other things as well. It goes, it goes to race and gender and other, other factors. But in this area of socioeconomic diversity, just, just letting it be known that you want people who have that diversity in their backgrounds. I mean, I had that experience personally that was speaking with law school professors and, and clerkship advisors that I, I really want people who are not from a cookie cutter. You know, I, I'm looking for people whose backgrounds are unusual. I mean, I, had one one clerk who grew up on a dairy farm in Montana, and, and he was was the first in his family. And it's like those are things that I think resulted from my saying to people, "This is the kind of person I'm looking for." Judges talked about reading cover letters closely, and that was one way that they could identify those kinds of applicants for those who were looking for that dimension of diversity. Judges really care about who their clerks are as people. And they talked about reading cover letters, trying to get a sense of who this person was and what kinds of things they had experienced in their background and why they would be a good match for that judge. The next factor you talk about is gender and the role that gender plays in clerkship hiring. Be fascinated what your conclusions were that and whether you're surprised by them. So I think the biggest surprise in this area was not that people considered it, but that they were so direct and straightforward in how they considered it. I think judges, many of them, just flat out told us, I'm looking for two and two, or I'm looking for always at least one of another gender, so I'm not having you know four or three of the same. In other words, they were totally intentional about the composition gender-wise of their chambers and very aware of this. The other finding, I think, is that although virtually every judge we spoke to, not, not entirely every, but, but virtually every judge uh, paid attention to this, the Democratic appointees said that this materialized fairly naturally within their applicant pools, whereas the Republican appointees um, said that they had a little more difficulty. 
And I think there are data to support a gender skew in terms of um, ideology. If you look at ideology, there are far fewer women law students who identify as conservative, um, and that may skew the pool that Republican appointees see. And several of the judges actually were quite candid in making comments that they felt this was problematic, that they felt that being identified as a Republican appointee did not help them with women. Um, one of them went even so far as to say, you know, I'm not seeing a lot uh, that would attract women to the Republican Party right now or words to that effect. Um, so they were very aware of the societal context um, in which their uh, hiring was was occurring. But I would say that overall, everyone was very attentive to this and felt that from a kind of diversity standpoint, um, as one judge said, you know, I don't want my chambers to look basically like a fraternity house. <laughs> and um, so it's like a culture issue and also a kind of, you know, diversity of perspectives issue for them. I, I know we're going to we're going to talk about racial diversity in a minute, but I think it was interesting. One of the things that was very interesting to me, not not so much surprising as it just it, it, it confirms something is that nobody really had a problem with making affirmative efforts to achieve gender diversity. I, I don't think there was any any judge we talked to of the 50 who, who had a problem with that. And yet when we got to race, you know, we had a much more uh, complicated picture, which we're going to talk about. But it's, it's just interesting how, how those two things differ. I wonder if there's two things operating there. One is most law schools are now more than 50% women. Our law school is 63% women, which inevitably would make gender diversity somewhat easier. And second, I wonder if the issue with regard to racial diversity is so tied to the politics with regard to affirmative action. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think we, I think that that certainly came up when we talked about racial diversity. But I was struck by how uncontroversial gender diversity is. I mean, it, it's great. I mean, I, I'm, I was very happy that it's not controversial, but it just... I, it, it, I was surprised at how unanimous that sentiment was. Well, let me use that as a transition to move yeah. to talking yeah. about yeah. racial diversity. Yeah. It's a very substantial part of the article as it needs to be. Be real interested in how you would present the differences among the judges you talk to, your different categories in the paper. So we ended up, as you say, dividing it into four categories, which of course are rough. There was a lot of nuance here, but the the first was just two judges who we refer to as colorblind. And these were judges who simply said, I want the best people. I don't think about people in this way, and I hope I never will. We think this probably was underrepresented in our sample, this perspective, that judges who felt this way may have been less likely to agree to participate. But then the remaining 48 did embrace racial diversity to at least some degree. And of course, it varied quite a bit, um, but they were all willing to say they valued racial diversity. And there was a second group that valued it, but very reluctantly and would say that they often contrasted it to socioeconomic diversity, saying that that really was a better proxy for what they were looking for but that they would look at race as essentially a plus factor between two candidates that were otherwise identical. Then with the remaining judges, this was 11 Republican appointees and 32 Democratic appointees. They all embraced racial diversity. They were very happy to have it. They, they strive for it. But what we found was a further difference between 
aspiring to have it and the strategies that you needed to actually achieve it. And so we had this last group of judges who had either taken efforts to shape their pool through going out and affirmatively recruiting, were also willing to go outside of the conventional criteria. So they were willing to look beyond the the traditional schools and people from the top of their classes. So they had active strategies to achieve it rather than simply aspiring to have racial diversity. They had these strategies to be very intentional about it. Yeah, I would say from my perspective, I think that was the most significant finding that we made with regard to to racial diversity was that the the people who were successful in achieving that, and if if the judge had that as a goal, and that was most of our sample, and I agree, I think we we underrepresented people who see it differently uh, because they didn't participate in the study. It's not that we didn't invite them, but they they just didn't participate. The people who were actually successful in achieving that goal were people who had an intentional strategy. That sort of the, the notion that, wanting it is enough, you know, that if you just want it, it'll come to you. That really doesn't work unless you, you know, worked, there were a couple of exceptions. I mean, people located in very, very desirable locations didn't have any trouble getting diverse applicants. But but for the most part, if you if you wanted to get a diverse pool of candidates you were likely to hire, you had to go out and make some extra efforts. And I think that was the consistent message we got from the judges of color who were part of the study. Uh, that they said that's how they've done it. You know, that's what they've needed to do. Yeah, and in some cases that took the form of pretty extreme efforts of reading fellowship announcements, actually identifying people and sending them a letter saying, come to my chambers, consider clerking for me. For a lot of other judges, it was regularly being out and about at law schools, meeting people at dinners who would later become their clerks. And they talked about how a lot of their racially diverse clerks might have been inclined to self-veto. They said there were clerks who said, I would have never applied to you had you not been sitting next to me at dinner and encouraged me. I would have thought I didn't have the grades. I, I didn't have the qualifications. And so that gave us kind of a window into how this increases diversity by overcoming some of this inclination to self-veto. Goodwin, did you want to add anything in terms of the conclusions you came to with regard to racial diversity? Well, I would just add one other thing, which is that it's certainly true, as we report, that the minority judges in our study had, on the whole, greater success in hiring minority clerks. And so we were interested, I think some people might look at that finding and say, well, they have the advantage of being, you know, prominent minority judges. And so uh, there's a there's a sort of, an again, segmentation, um, natural attraction uh, that applicants might have. I think there is an element of that. Um, that was reported to us. But I think at least equally important was that the minority judges themselves said that it wasn't like I just got appointed and all these black applicants appeared. (laughs) Um, They themselves had to go out and pound the pavement and show up at law schools, uh, do the outreach, go to the dinners, judge the moot courts, make themselves visible in essence, and build their own pipelines. Some of them had built extremely extensive personal pipelines into their chambers through their uh, network of former clerks, through you know district court judges whom they know, through um, their former clerks who are now law firm, you know, in, in law firms. So a lot of effort goes into this. And, and one of the things I think that our study supports is that this is not 
specific to minority judges that any judge can do this. And in fact, we do have a few judges who are not minority in our, in our sample who had done these efforts too. And the good news, I think, is that the market does respond, which is many of them said there's a snowball effect, essentially, like once you signal in the market that you actually will consider people from diverse backgrounds and that you actually do end up hiring them, then more of those people will then apply to you in the future. And this builds on itself. And we heard this repeatedly from both minority and non-minority judges. Yeah, and I can think of two uh, Republican appointees, both notably conservative, who made conspicuous efforts to let people know that they were hiring very diverse groups of clerks and they wanted to hire and they made uh, extra efforts to do that. And they, and they got them, uh, you know, that they, they got positive results. Are there other major conclusions that we didn't touch on that you would want to discuss? I think that, and I really say this with all sincerity, I was impressed by how thoughtful the judges we interviewed are all, all 50 of them. I mean, I think everybody really took seriously what we were doing. I think it's one of the reasons that I ended up feeling very good about the study is I thought that that people really gave it their best and it made me proud of our judiciary. It was a and, and I just say that as a really a compliment to the to the people who were the subjects of our study. Yeah, and I think so by pointing out things that we think need to be done, uh, improvements we think are needed, uh, I don't want to take anything away from what people brought to the table because I was very impressed. In asking about your recommendations, I was thinking of it in terms of what recommendations you would make to judges, because one of the points that you make from the very beginning is how decentralized the hiring is, each judge does it, and how much we value the independence of the judges doing it, and how they do this in isolation from other judges. So I'm interested in what recommendation you have to individual judges. I'm interested in what recommendations you have to law schools. Obviously, as the dean of a law school, I'm particularly interested in that. And finally, what recommendations you have to law students who are going into the process? So maybe to start with what this seems most directed at, judges. Do you have advice based on this for judges? I think one of our findings relates to judicial culture, because as you say, it's necessarily decentralized. It promotes judicial independence. And yet, at the same time, it potentially inhibits diversity in law clerk hiring because we find very consistently that there's just this culture of silence around law clerk hiring, that judges feel very reluctant to intrude upon what they see as the sacred prerogative of their colleagues. And yet, at the same time, they express an eagerness to learn from their colleagues. They were very aware of their colleagues' practices. They would sometimes say, judge so-and-so in our circuit regularly hires black law clerks. I've seen them at on banc hearings or panel dinners, but I don't know how they're doing it. And sometimes the interview seemed to be the first chance that a judge had really had to reflect on the hiring and and to see that there was this real lack of diversity with respect to black clerks, for example. And so judicial culture seems to be one of the the most significant things to that needs to change. And yet also on an optimistic note, I think if there are opportunities and it becomes a regular practice for judges to learn from each other, I think that could be very successful, that a lot of judges are understandably worried about departing from what they called their comfort zone of hiring a clerk from a, a less elite school or not towards the top of their class. 
And yet if they could hear from their colleagues who regularly do this, that they have very successful clerks, that really could be an opportunity for, for change. Yeah. My advice to judges is it just, it's helpful to talk about it. And I, and I say that recognizing these are uncomfortable conversations a lot of the time. You feel like your colleagues might judge you. You know, they might, they might think less of you because of the criteria you're using or the, the kinds of people you hire. And you're disclosing something fairly intimate about yourself, really, when you talk about this. So I think it's awkward, uh, but I think, I think the more judges can talk about it, the better. I would just add that I would want to leave judges with a sense of possibility and the, and the notion that they can make a difference on this. One way to think about the clerk hiring data is based on the information we found in the study, we report that Black judges, though they comprised only about one-eighth of the entire pool of the, of the circuit judiciary at the time of our study, probably accounted for at least half of the Black clerks that are hired in a given year. Now, that's a very significant disproportion. But another way of viewing that data is, I think we did the math to say that if every judge who hires three or four clerks a year were to hire just one additional Black clerk every three years, that would double the number of Black clerks clerking in the federal judiciary at the circuit level. So a small gesture, a small decision, a small adjustment can make a huge difference uh, given where we are. And I think hopefully that inspires in, in many judges an idea that they can individually make a difference on these issues. Well, let me shift to law schools. Are there things that law schools can do better based on the study that you've done? What made a difference to me in this dimension was getting to know people at law schools and say, I am looking for these kinds of people. I mean, the judges need to not be shy about having those conversations, and the law schools need not to be shy about having those conversations with judges. And so, you know, and I, I never said, you know, I, I have quotas or I want this kind of person this year, but I, I just said, you know, I'm, I'm particularly interested in, in highly qualified minority applicants. I'm interested in people from diverse economic backgrounds. You know, and, and so I put criteria out that told the people I knew at the law schools, you know, this is a judge who's open to hiring these kinds of people. So when they were having uh, conversations with, with students who are interested, the, the, they, they knew that. And, and then I think the other thing, and it's just nothing new, I mean, I'm sure when you've said this so often, but the law schools need to do a better job of encouraging students who are self-vetoing, you know, who might be thinking they're not qualified and really really making that extra effort. Some of the judges did report to us that they felt that law schools filtered a lot in terms of who they sent to particular judges. And some of them were a little bit disappointed saying that, you know, I didn't see this person appear in my pool because the law school didn't think that I would even think about hiring this person when in fact I actually was very interested. And I think that um, this speaks to the need for sort of ongoing efforts to really make dialogue between the judges and the schools. I think judges are, as we report, somewhat, you know, shy about this topic as a sensitive topic. And some of them reported that they had never really reached out to law schools to tell them what they want. They, and some of them felt that it was kind of risky even to do so. So there is a kind of diffidence about this issue. And I think if law schools, including the clerkship uh, directors, can be more proactive in, in drawing out judges and asking what their preferences are, that 
you know, it's we're, we're urging the judges actually to kind of take the initiative to to kind of start that conversation. But it's in both directions. And I think there is a lot of mis I wouldn't say a lot, but there are sometimes misperceptions about what people want. And then that's redounds to the detriment of the students. I think that's a great point. I think your point about the importance of dialogue with judges is crucial. I think what Jeremy said of the law schools encouraging students to apply, it's not only self-vetoing, it's students not thinking about that path and reaching out to them and encouraging. But the only good one that I'd say is I'm very careful in who I recommend, that I recognize that if I recommend somebody to a judge and they do poorly, that judge isn't going to trust me in the future. And I've got to be very careful not to oversell my students Mm -hmm. while at the same time selling. And there have been instances where I've said to a judge, you've taken to my students as clerks before. I don't think this person is at that level. So while you're right, we need to sell our students. I also think there's a burden on schools if we're going to be trusted to not oversell our students too. Yeah, there is a professor of Sherry May Nameless who would write to me often because I got a lot of recommendations from this professor. And they um, always would write something at the bottom of the letter, which was sort of an, ad- an addendum to what was in the, in the type letter. And, and that was kind of how I knew. Finally, and this is the perfect place to end, I imagine that many of those who are listening to this are in law school or recent graduates who are thinking of clerkships. From your study, any advice or words of wisdom to them? I think one thing that stood out, which I had mentioned before, was the the cover letters to take time to individually research judges. Judges often mention that they were interested in why is this person applying to me? So showing some interest in that judge, being willing to to be pretty candid about your own experiences, um, because that can really matter to judges. And then of course, as as we've talked about, to make sure that you're not setting your sights too low, that you might not be self-vetoing, that you're considering a really broad range. And if you're not from an elite school, potentially looking at judges who themselves didn't attend an elite school based on our findings might be one thing that you'd consider. And I think just to, to Mary's point, I mean, personalizing yourself, I mean, not sending a form letter, but really, really thinking about the person to whom you're writing and, and who, what that person's like and what you know about them. And uh, I, I think I think judges on the receiving end of letters like that really appreciate them. I echo what both Jeremy and Mary have said. And I, I would just say um, one last point about the times in which we live. I think, you know, the ideological polarization is a big issue and it goes to the credibility of the judiciary. I'm very sensitive to that myself, uh, being a sitting judge. And I would just urge students not to make overly categorical um, assumptions about uh, judges based on the party um, of the president who appointed them and really do individual research into people to find out what they're about, whether they are good mentors, what the quality of the clerkship experience is like. And so, uh, you know, to, to be a little thoughtful, I guess, um, and, and eschew the labels because I think we all uh, really need a judiciary that is viewed as not prone to the same partisan influences that we rightly expect in some ways in the political sphere. Um, And that's one thing that the clerkship process really, I think uh, we need to keep an eye on at this point in time. Great place to end the conversation. Judge Jeremy Fogel, Justice Goodwin Liu, Professor Mary Hoops, 
thank you for your terrific, important article, and thank you for taking the time now to discuss it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of More Just. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question about the law or a topic you'd like us to cover, send an email to morejust, all one word, M-R-E, just, at berkeley.edu to tell us your thoughts. Until next time, I'm Berkeley Law Dean, Erwin Chemerinsky.